This episode is full of spoilers and contains some not-so-super language. citizens. There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. We call it the Fortress of Potitude. I'm Dave Michaels. I'm Brian Betts. And this is the Cape Podcasters. Is it a dimension of imagination? Not this time. An area which we call the, uh, the signpost up ahead. No, oh, it's yeah, there's different openings, bud, for different the fortress. Seasons. Come on, uh, of potitude. That's right. We are in the fortress of potitude. This big eyeball hanging down, coming through a, a door frame, and it's staring right at me. It's weird. I opened the door and was surprised when the other side was just more fortress. <laughs> it's uh, bigger on the inside, I guess. Is that Something how that, like that. works? <laughs> <laughs> This week, we are talking about 1983's Twilight Zone, the movie, directed by John Landis, Steven Spielberg, Joe Dante, and George Miller. Steven fucking Spielberg, Joe fucking Dante, and George fucking Miller. See, I almost said it was a murderer's row of directors, but it's a little <laughs> too close to home. <laughs> uh, we'll get there shortly. And- I'm sure it's going to come up. Frequently and often. Yeah, and it's funny because I was talking to Phil Hudson Hawkins today about this. I said, I wonder if it's like appropriate to make jokes about that, like what level of joke you do. And he said, hey, man, tragedy plus time equals comedy. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I suppose. Uh, let it rip, I guess. <laughs> yeah, what's it been, like 40 years? I guess it's... <laughs> Is there a statute of limitations? I know some people are like, oh, besides that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the show? Oh, that's too soon. Come on. That's a low blow on old Abe. <laughs> Too soon. Uh, uh, we're going to be walking on eggshells <laughs> just briefly <laughs> until I think we, we get past the point where it becomes uh, silly. A goof him up again. Yeah, exactly. But um, it's going to take a little bit for sure. For a few moments there, it's, it's going to be real dicey. And then we're just going to throw caution to the wind because honestly, what else are we going to do? That's all you can really do. Uh, have you ever seen this thing before? I have never seen this, but I have seen lots of episodes of The Twilight Zone, you know, the, the TV show. You got any favorites? I have a few. I think they're pretty standard as far as Twilight Zone favorite fare goes, though. To Surf Man, The Obsolete Man, mm-hmm. Time Enough to Last. Yep. <laughs> Monsters are due on Maple Street. It's fantastic. Classic. Yeah. I'm a really big fan of five characters in search of an exit. Really oh, big fan of that one. That's a really good one. Yeah. I just got chills. Yeah, as you should. Whoa. Can we just not record this episode, just go watch some episodes of The Twilight Zone and just say, I would. yeah, I nailed it. We knocked it out of the park. I'd love uh, to do that. You know, these are just remakes of it anyway, so we might as well just <laughs> talk about the show. <laughs> yeah, but then we wouldn't get to say all the fun things that are in this that are, you know, not the one thing that's not fun. That's right. Let's just get into it. Um, Let's just do it. All right. I'm glad the first segment is the awkward one. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> get it out of the way nice and early. All right, now that that's over, let's get into it. Prologue. Albert Brooks and Dan Aykroyd are riding in a car. That's it. Yep. They're, they're grooving out to Midnight <laughs> Special by Credence. And the cassette breaks, leaving these men in silence. So they decide to play a game, uh, guessing TV theme songs based on how the other person's humming. And, you know, sometimes they're good at it. Sometimes they're not. No, but that seems like a pretty easy game. Like, I think it was Miami Vice that Albert Brooks had trouble with. Yeah. It's like, dude, it's fucking Miami Vice. How it's do you Miami not Vice. know that? It's the biggest show in the 80s. Come on. It's super obvious. But this eventually leads them to talking about the Twilight Zone and how weird and scary some of the episodes were. It's very meta. It is really meta, and I did not see the conversation going that way. No, me either. Out of nowhere, Dan Aykroyd asks Brooks, do you want to see something really scary? You got to pull over. So Brooks just pulls the car over. Dan Aykroyd turns his head away for a few seconds, and he turns back as some kind of demonic creature, and he attacks Albert Brooks. Yeah, as you do. Dan Aykroyd finally took off his makeup. He got to be himself in a film, and I'm happy for him. We're all ecstatic for him that he gets to reveal his true self. (laughs) What a weird way to open this movie. With all the whys in his name intact. There's so many whys in his name. And then we get a, uh, a Burgess Meredith VO. How great was that? Burgess fucking Meredith. He's doing the Rod Serling bit of narrating the segment that's about to happen, the episode that's about to play out. It's yeah. so damn good. Well, there's time now, so. That's a good point. And <laughs> it would have been very good, like, at the end of it, if, like, he had one more segment to do and he starts introducing it, and then you hear his glasses fall off his face and break, and he's like, no, 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 I had one more day on this job. No. Now I'm stuck on the Twilight Zone set forever, and <laughs> forever. terrible things happen here. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> so Burgess Meredith VOs, you unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of sight, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance of things and ideas. You've crossed over into Hot Tub Time Machine. Yep. Right into segment one. He continues his VO. You're about to meet an angry man, Mr. William Connor, who carries on his shoulder a chip the size of the national debt. This is a sour man, a lonely man, who's tired of waiting for the breaks that come to others, but never to him. Mr. William Connor, whose own blind hatred is about to catapult him into the darkest corner of the hot tub time machine. They just keep doing it, man. So Bill Connor, played by Vic fucking Morrow. I have to give it to him in this movie for obvious (laughs) reasons. Um, want to get it out of the way? Is that the uh, right thing to do? Yeah, why don't, we, why don't we get it out of the way? So, Vic Morrow got his head chopped off by a helicopter while making this movie. There's no gentle way of putting it other than Vic Morrow, who we're watching act on screen, got his head chopped right off his body by a helicopter. By a, a falling helicopter. And not only him... But uh, two Vietnamese children. Or at least one of them got their head chopped off. One of them just got smushed. Yeah, one of them just got smushed pretty bad. Um, uh, illegally hired child actors uh, also got killed on, on the set of this movie. Because sometimes stunts and sometimes, uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I do know several people got charged and all got acquitted. Which is a problem. Yep. Because typically, whenever the lead actor of your film Gets his head 
chopped <laughs> off by a helicopter. By a special effect, yeah. Someone should get charged. And it was a special effect. They said the pyrotechnics melted the helicopter blades, and then it kind of fell. Right. And, uh, you know, chopped Vic Morrow's head off with yeah. its blades. So this isn't planned at all, but I do have an actual IMDb trivia fact. This wasn't going to be my first one if I even read it at all, but it feels appropriate now for some reason. I wonder why. And I did not submit any caped ones because I, I felt like if I take like one off every now and then, they might not be on to me as much. Oh, I like that. I'm trying it out. You think they're just like watching? Sub- <laughs> they're subscribed to our podcast. And they're like, all right, next week, we better watch out the IMDb page for Twilight Zone. This asshole on Front Street typically records on Mondays, and he's updating IMDb on Mondays. Let's keep an eye out on Mondays. As Vic Morrow was waiting to film what would turn out to be the scene that killed him, he allegedly said to a production assistant, I must be out of my mind to be doing this. I should have asked for a stunt double. What can they do but kill me, right? Oh, my God. (laughs) While he was filming Dirty Mary Crazy Larry in 1974, He insisted on having a $1 million life insurance policy before he would shoot any scenes involving the helicopter in which he was due to ride. He was very insistent, and when asked why, Morrow allegedly replied, I've always had a premonition I was going to die in a helicopter crash. Oh, man. Wild. Now, this is probably the most off-color thing I could say regarding this, (laughs) but calling his shot is a lot like going, Kobe. Oh, Wow. <laughs> Tragedy plus Tragedy time. Plus time. <laughs> Jesus. It's just math, man. It's just wow. math. Don't let math scare you. Look, I'm going to I'm going to need you to not cut that joke because wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's too good. This is so uncomfortable to watch because one of my favorite shows possibly ever is Father Ted. It's a British TV show. It's about okay. uh, priests. Weird enough, same guy sure. who's an IT crowd. And Dermot Morgan stars as the titular Father Ted. And he very famously died the day after they finished filming the last episode of that, of just a heart attack. Oh, wow. And whenever you watch the last episodes now, you're just like, that dude's going to be dead like real soon, IRL. It's really uncomfortable watching. But watching Vic Morrow here, you're just like, <laughs> my God, you died because you made a Twilight Zone movie. Yeah. It's really uncomfortable watching it. You feel it's, dirty. Uh, yeah, I, This being the first time I've seen this, I was like, uh-oh, that's the guy. And then you're just waiting for like Vietnam scenes the whole time. When they yeah. got to the Vietnam part, I'm sitting there going like, oh, God, they're going to do something with a helicopter. It's going to be awful. <laughs> Wait, no, it can't actually be in the movie, can it? No. And it's no, not. Luckily. It's not. <laughs> but it's so bad you don't even get to appreciate the Al Leong appearance in the scene it's true he's fucking great always always so bill connor is a terribly racist bigoted man who's pretty butthurt about getting passed over for a promotion to a jewish guy he's not just bigoted like he is exactly who you'd think he is like if you were alive right now there'd be a red hat on his head (laughs) not a political podcast not a political podcast. if he were alive right now the Email address a-hole on front street at gmail.com would not have been available. No, it wouldn't have been available at all. Because <laughs> this guy would have it already. They drop so many N-words. So like many. It's, it, I, one is too many, and they do more than that. He's drinking after work with friends? Coworkers? Two guys. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> and Bill just starts slinging slurs left and right towards 
Jewish people, black people, and Asians just going all out. You know the words. Yeah, not saying those words by any means. He's saying he's, the bad parts. He's the, saying them. The derogatory but, but yeah. stuffs. When he's rightfully told to shut the fuck up, uh, he just leaves the bar very angrily. But when he walks outside, Bill finds himself in Nazi-occupied France during World War II. As you do, I guess, right? Yeah, sometimes you, you say some hateful shit in a bar, you walk outside, and you're like, oh, Nazis. <laughs> he's spotted by a pair of SS officers who question him, attempt to arrest him, shoot at him, and then chase him around the city. They don't just shoot at him, they shoot him. They shoot him. They hit him right in, right in the arm. He gets winged, and then he's just running around holding his arm the whole time. Yeah, he attempts to hide in an apartment, but the residents quickly betray him, and shout out to the German soldiers patrolling the streets, like, hey... He's in here, the guy you're looking for, and he's like, you shut up, what are you doing? So he climbs out of the building, he's standing on the ledge, and then these two German officers come back, and they just start shooting at him again. Yeah, that doesn't work out well for this man. No, he's, he's very short-sighted in his plans of escape. He ends up falling off the ledge, and he wakes up in the rural south in the 50s, surrounded by Ku Klux Klan members who see him as a black man. And it's not just Ku Klux Klan members, because the lead KKK member is John fucking Larroquette. It sure is, and I have an actual IMDb trivia fact. <laughs> I am so curious about whatever you're going to say right now, because I was shocked to see John fucking Larroquette. <laughs> According to John Larroquette, who played one of the lead KKK members, he refused to wear a KKK hood because he wanted his face to be visible. Which is weird. It's such a weird It's move. not that I don't want to be cast as this, it's... I kind of want to be on that screen. I mean, if you're going to put put me me in the movie, you better not cover up my face. (laughs) So Bill keeps yelling that he's white, but the KKK ain't buying it. And we see it's just Vic Morrow. Yeah, it's it's just Vic Morrow. And they're just like, we're going to hang you. We're going to lynch you right here. And, you know, he bumps into a guy who bumps into the flaming cross and gets lit on fire, which gets him enough of a... a (laughs) distraction to get away and undo his tied together hands on the fender of a truck i don't know yeah i don't know what that's about either but he got out good for him he got out he tries diving into a nearby pond but the clan members catch up they start firing into the pond and he goes underwater only to re-emerge in the vietnam war and now we have to start <laughs> now it's like all right let's check my, my blood pressure how what's going on now <laughs> It's crazy because he walks out from like behind a tree and he sees like the American soldiers there and they're like yelling, oh, Charlie, Charlie. And that's not a good thing. No. That's a bad thing. In fact. No, that's bad. But he, he's also, he hears the American soldiers. He's like, okay, they can rescue me. I'm American. He runs over to them and instead uh, they shoot him. Again, <laughs> this man's now got two bullet holes in him. I have another actual IMDb trivia fact. We are on segment one. What are you doing? Hey, hey, hey. Uh, this one had a lot of facts, believe it or not. <laughs> you, I could believe it. People want to lose their fucking heads over this thing. <laughs> Director John Landis filmed Animal House prior to Twilight Zone, the movie. At the end of the film, the audience was told that the character Lieutenant Niedermeyer was killed by his own troops in Vietnam. Later in this film, when the soldiers are coming down the river... One of them hears a reed snap and says, I told you we shouldn't have shot Lieutenant Niedermeyer. That's actually brilliant. It's so good. And I've lost all respect for John Landis, but that's pretty damn good. Uh, yeah. You know, sometimes you set up a cinematic universe where Twilight Zone and Animal House happen in the same. <laughs> I um, guess so. <laughs> I don't know. A grenade thrown by the soldiers blasts Bill back to France where he's captured by the Nazi officers and put into a railroad freight car with other Holocaust prisoners. 
I don't know how time travel works, but it seems like every time he should die, he just gets sent somewhere else. Well, this is the last place he gets sent, isn't it? But it's also the first place he got sent. Right, and uh, you could tell they had to edit around certain things. Oh, for Like sure. their lead actor getting his head chopped off by a helicopter. Cannot stress enough how chopped off his head got by a helicopter. I've been on sets for accidents before, and they're never good, and they're usually minor, which is fine. Like, oh, that actor's doing a running scene, and he twists his ankle or something like that, because he hit, like, a tree root or something like that. I am so morbidly curious how this was handled on set, of how you just watch Vic Morrow's head just get blasted off his body. And what do you do (laughs) in that moment? Like, do you get, like, a PA with a mop or something like that to just, like, go and just, like, let's go again? It's like, we fucking can't, John Landis! (laughs) We only had one Vic Morrow. Oh, so you're saying the props didn't bring a backup Vic Moore. Real professional, guys. Real professional. I imagine that his stunt double was so happy that day. (laughs) (laughs) Like, not happy, but relieved, you know? Oh, man. He's like, I had to go to a wedding in Catalina. This really worked out for me. (laughs) Whew, lucky me. (laughs) He didn't even think to ask for a stunt double until, like, right before he shot it. Right before he shot it. And it was really just because he was getting all cocky. He wanted to show how it was done. Yeah, you know, it was 2.30 in the morning, so I was already in bed. They couldn't get a hold of me. Suck about those kids, though. Oh, yeah. Working at 2.30 in the morning, which is totally already illegal. Yeah, it is. Uh, And this segment dips out so hard. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It just is so abrupt the way it ends. From inside the train, Bill sees his friends exit the bar, and he starts screaming at them for help. But uh, they can't hear him because he's on a magical time travel train getting brought away. To wherever. To wherever it's going. Not great for Bill, I imagine. <laughs> no. And that takes us right into segment two, directed by Steven Spielberg. And it's a nice little remake of Kick the Can. Sure is. I have an actual IMDb trivia fact about that. My God. <laughs> There's so many. And I, you made me Chandler Bing there. That's how upset I was about hearing IMDb trivia fact. My God. <laughs> Could there be any more trivia? <laughs> Steven Spielberg briefly considered Rod Serling's The Twilight Zone. The monsters are due on Maple Street about neighborhood paranoia that's set off by a force of invading aliens from the Twilight Zone as a potential segment, which he canceled because it involved nighttime filming with children and special effects. This was mainly due to the tragedy that occurred on the (laughs) Time Out segment. He finally chose Kick the Kin from the original series. Well, he chose Kick the Kin because it's Steven Spielberg and he's obsessed with your inner child. A hundred percent. Like, this is the most Steven Spielberg thing that's ever been shot. <laughs> and he did it in six days. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. I watched because it. Because he was, he was like, uh, I need to spend as little time as possible on this movie. Yep. The VO starts out, it is sometimes said that where there is no hope, there is no life. Case in point, the residents of Sunnyvale Rest Home, where hope is just a memory. But hope just checked into Sunnyvale, disguised as an elderly optimist, who carries his magic in a shiny tin can. Mr. Bloom, played by Scatman fucking Crothers. Man, that smile. Oh, It's so damn good. He's so, so damn good. good. He's an old man who just moved into this new home at Sunnyvale Retirement Center. Home? Sunnyvale I Rest don't know. Home? It's, whatever they call it. It's a rest home. Upon his arrival, he listens to the other elders reminisce about the activities they enjoyed as children. Their little 
school ground nursery rhymes and their talk of playing stickball and whatnot. And then one kid says, I used to play kick the can. Everyone's like, fuck, yes. Oh, hell yeah, kick the can. I was the school Jack's champion. Shut up, Barbara. We're talking about real stuff over here. <laughs> Jacks, what a goddamn joke when you could have been kicking cans, Barbara. Kicking cans. Mr. Bloom tells all of them that just because they're old doesn't mean they can't enjoy life anymore. Feeling young has to do with your attitude, not your age. And he tells them that later that night, he's going to wake them all up and they can go join him in a game of kick the can right there at the Sunnydale home. I feel like rest home is just a nice way of just like, I don't want to call it a nursing home, but you're going to literally kick the can soon. You're for sure going to be kicking some cans here one way or another. And does everyone sleep in the same room? It seems like it's it might be like a, a chocolate factory situation. Very strange. Like there's a lot of old people in there. Yeah. And um, there's some married couples as well. And I mean, they're not shut down, if you know what I mean. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. Um, there's, I would say there's not a lot of winking and nudging because the person in the beginning of this scene is talking about all the vitamins, what they're good for. And That's how point. vitamin E is, you know, if you had a healthy sex life as a, as a young younger person, no reason you can't still have it going on now in your 80s. Now let's all go sleep in the same room with each other. Imagine being in the same room as Mr. and Mrs. Weinstein. We're going to get there shortly. Um, <laughs> Steven Spielberg, is. it's probably good that he's a Jewish man because he talked <laughs> a, a small girl child into... Oh, boy. Stereotypes. Oh, boy. <laughs> She's very good at it. Yes. Uh, resident party pooper Leo Conroy, played by Bill Quinn. He disagrees with everything Mr. Bloom just said. He's like, ah, we're old. We can't engage in physical activity and play games. We're old. Break hips. It's bad. Don't bother waking me up. So that night, Mr. Bloom gathers the rest of the residents outside, and they play a game of kick the can. And a magical thing happens. The Sunnyvale residents all transform back into child versions of themselves. They do, but they don't. Yeah, they're all, they have all the cognitive facilities of an 80-year-old, but in the body of a child. Yeah, it's basically just old people as kids at this point, and it's strange. Like, their mannerisms do not change, their clothes do not change. <laughs> <laughs> it's very weird. They're just tiny old people. Although they're ecstatic to be young again and engage in the activities they enjoyed so long ago, they realize that being young again means they'll also have to revisit the not-so-great aspects of life. Like what? Like, all oh, their family dying and whatnot and, and, you know, going to school. I don't want to go to school again. That's wild that that's the thing that, like, turns them off. <laughs> it's like 12 years, not even 12 years. Most of these kids are probably, like, middle school aged at this point yeah, or older. Yeah, for sure. And they're like, I don't want to do five more years of that, even though my brain doesn't work the same way. And I definitely could relearn this stuff. But then they're just like... <laughs> Oh, you mean I have to lose all these people all over again? It's like, no, they're going to stay dead. You got younger. I don't know how to explain this to you anymore. <laughs> hey, they're already dead. Uh, yeah, but I have to meet new people and they're going to die too? I don't want to do it again. Ah, <laughs> oh, these poor old young bastards. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> poor old young bastards. Anyway, they all decide that they'd rather be old. Um, because, you know, Mr. Bloom was like, well, here's the thing. You can stay young at heart. Doesn't he say that they can have, like, good brains? Yeah, basically, you can have <laughs> you can have kiddo brains in your old bods, and they're like, yeah, let's do that instead. Is that better? I feel like it's the opposite of what they're doing now, which is old heads <laughs> and kid bods. So there's a whole bunch of switcheroos happening here, 
And then poor Bill Quinn, Leo Conroy, uh, the old curmudgeon. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he wakes up to find a bunch of kids in the bedroom that they all apparently share. And then like an asshole, he goes and tattles. He's like, I got to tell on these kids. Why are there children in my nursing home? So he goes and he gets Miss Cox, played by Priscilla Porter. And uh, when they come back to the room, all of the kids are no longer kids. They're grown adults. And Leo Conroy looks like a crazy person. He does. But Except. then he does that thing that breaks your heart. Yeah, because there's one kid who who decided he's going to stay a kid because he's, you know, he's a swashbuckling type. He likes being a pirate instead of being an old man. So he's going to oh, stay. He jumps a out a window. That he, kid straight up jumps out a window. He absolutely straight up jumps out a window. Mr. Ag is uh he's had enough shenanigans in the old people's home and he's he's going to leave. And Leo Conroy is like, "Hey, take me with you?" You had your chance, old man. Hey, we were playing kick the can, and you noped out of that, so no. You did. You got, you got an old body and old brain, while these folks just got an old body and good brains. Yep. He just stayed old on all fronts. Right. And Steven Spielberg, just everything you can imagine he would do, he did. <laughs> he, he Spielberg all over the place. He sure did. So the, the kid runs off after he leaps out the window. And uh, Conroy realizes that he doesn't have to stop enjoying life because he's an old man. The next morning, Mr. Bloom leaves Sunnyvale Retirement Home to move into another retirement home in another town. And Leo Conroy is outside the Sunnyvale home, just happily kicking a can around. Which is very sweet. But also, is Mr. Bloom just going retirement home to retirement home, just conning people? A hundred percent. He's just going place (laughs) to place, turning them into little kids and then going, oh, you didn't want that? All right. What a strange grift. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think he gets anything out of it other than just seeing the happiness of old folks. He doesn't, because even he says, he's like, yeah, I guess I could use the can on myself. I just choose not to. Which is strange that you're forcing other people to do it. <laughs> I'm happy being an old fart. I just want other people to realize that they're happy being an old fart, too. Yeah, we're going to arrest you because you are involuntarily Benjamin Buttoning people. We can't have that in this town. <laughs> well, he's un-Benjamin Buttoning them. Eventually so. he is. Like he's he's, he Benjamin starts unbuttoning them? With a full <laughs> Benjamin Button. How you have <laughs> old person and young body. And that's pretty much how that movie goes. That's true. But then he decides to do the old switcheroo. It's Benjamin Buttoning. Right, it is unbuttoning. You got to be careful with Benjamin unbuttoning though, Because you're never sure when he's a child and when he's not. Yeah, that's a strange porn parody that... I hope exists, but if it doesn't, uh, TM, TM, TM. I also hope it doesn't exist. I'm not going to say I'm not curious. I'm not going to say that. Well, it would be a curious case. It would be the most curious Of the Benjamin case. unbuttoning. <laughs> it's like, is that a fear boner? Or, I don't know, there's something happening down there and I cannot explain it. <laughs> this movie starts 18 years before Benjamin Button dies. <laughs> So what does that mean? Wait. I, I don't know. No, it ends 18 years before he dies. Wait. I don't what know. What does that mean? Still don't know. It's just the middle years, damn it. We can't want to <laughs> do Benjamin years. Button now. This is the most boring time in the Benjamin Button <laughs> life. It's like, oh, what is he? Normal. Just a normal person. Oh, he looks 20, but he's really 35. Yeah, <laughs> he lived a short life. That's the weird part about it. Like, he came out at 50. <laughs> and he was a baby and everyone's like oh god that's the that Benjamin Button's gonna die young that's... I guess 
Like, the best case scenario is, like, if you were a parent, you had a Benjamin Button, and it came out, and it looked just shriveled and just anciently old. You're just like, yeah, this kid's like, going to have a nice right. long life, I guess. That's a 300-year-old <laughs> baby for sure. <laughs> or if it comes out, it looks like a teenager. It's like, oh, God, Dolores, uh, I'm so sorry. Sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> then the kid signs on to a movie with helicopters. <laughs> right. Next segment. Next segment. Segment three, based on It's a Good Life, directed by Joe Dante. Portrait of a woman in transit. Helen Foley, age 27. Occupation, school teacher. Up until now, the pattern of her life has been one of unrelenting sameness, waiting for something different to happen. Helen Foley doesn't know it yet, but her waiting has just ended. Has it, though? If she's waiting for the end of sameness, I would say yes. Okay, that that's fair, but... um. She's getting into a real creep territory. Yes. And that's the part about this segment that did not sit well, because this one is a remake of It's a Good Life, and that is legitimately one of the creepiest Twilight Zone episodes that there is. Absolutely. Uh, This ending and this whole thing, actually, is just weird. They take what is already a great premise, and they're like, how do we make it a little more disturbing in a different way? They nailed it. Helen Foley played by Kathleen Quinlan, is a mild-mannered school teacher who is traveling to her new job across the country while visiting a diner for directions from the owner, Walter, played by Dick fucking Miller. She witnesses a young boy, played by Jeremy Licht, maybe liked. Doesn't matter. He's creepy in this, and I don't remember him in anything else. So. He's a strange-looking child. Uh, yeah. he's, he's playing a video game, and one of the patrons at the, uh, at the diner believes that the game is affecting the signal of the TV, so like any adult would do, he assaults the little boy. Yeah, as you do, yes. And I have an actual IMDb trivia fact. Yes, I'm so excited. Go ahead, Brian. This is actually an IMDb cameo trivia fact. Bill Moomy, the child in the famous episode of The Twilight Zone, It's a Good Life, of the original The Twilight Zone, plays the adult at the bar who gets angry at Anthony. I love that, because Bill Moomy does such a good job as a kid. Absolutely. Man, just the kid Jeremy Licht, or whatever his name is, does a pretty good job. But Joe Dante is the star of yeah. this whole entire segment. <laughs> For sure. So Helen sees this adult assault a child, and she's like, yeah, nope, this place sucks, and she decides to leave. On her way out of the parking lot, she backs into the little boy with her car, damaging his bike, but he's okay. The boy, Anthony, asks for a ride home, and she's like, well, I almost ran you over, so I guess I could, could at least do that. It's a weird blank check situation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, I could give you money to fix that. He's like, or you just give me a ride home. And she saw no red flags. None. Zero. He's just a child at this point. Really intense kid. Just a really intense kid who gets beat up at diners by adults. Right. Exactly. Who hasn't been there? And then almost run over by cars and parking lots. Just an unfortunate child. Yes. He's having a tough hour. They arrive at Anthony's house and they meet Uncle Walt, played by Kevin McCarthy. Anthony's sister. unfortunately named Kevin McCarthy. (laughs) (laughs) I'll say. Anthony's sister, Ethel, played by Nancy fucking Cartwright. That's a surprise. Big surprise. And Anthony's parents, mother and father, because they don't, they don't get actual names. That's probably the right move. Anthony shows Helen around the house, including his sister's room, where Anthony tells Helen that his other sister, Sarah, was involved in an accident. And the camera pans down, revealing that this girl has no mouth. Yeah, that's not great. Unbeknownst to poor Helen, she's in a scary place. She is, and 
all the adults in this scary place are just overly nice to Anthony. Like, yes. really overdoing Super it. Super nice. But they're also rifling through all of Helen's stuff as she's getting the grand tour. <laughs> Which is very good. The family gather for dinner, a meal made up of Anthony's favorite foods, burgers with peanut butter, ice cream, candy apples, and potato chips. And Dave, I know a couple weeks ago we talked about our uh, our death row meals. Yep. I might have an update. Oh, yeah? I think it might be burgers with peanut butter, ice cream, candy apples, and potato chips. I'll go to Anthony's house. I guarantee it will be your last meal. That sounds about right. During dinner, Ethel starts shouting at Anthony like your birthday again with presents, and then her plate inexplicably smashes on the ground. And he's like, I didn't do that. And it's like, why would you say that? It feels like you might have done that. <laughs> it totally feels like you did that. Helen attempts to leave after dinner, but Anthony insists that she stays and sees Uncle Walt's magic trick. Uncle Walt, unsure of what to do with the top hat that Anthony provides, reluctantly reaches in, pulls out a white rabbit. It's a, it's a you know, classic magic trick. Yep. And the family are relieved, and they applaud, and then suddenly, the rabbit becomes a demonic rabbit monster, and then everybody has to plead with Anthony to make it go away. Yeah, not great, and it's terrifying and weird, and it's super this weird. thing sticks around for so damn long, and I love how long it sticks around for, because you could like, feel the adults like, dude, Anthony, make that go away now. Make that go away. The family finally inform Helen. I feel like at this point, Helen's like, what the hell is going on? So the family's <laughs> like, all right, listen, we're not his real family. We were brought here to the house under false pretenses, much like you were. And uh, now we're his family because he's got powers or something and we can't leave. Helen finds a note in her, her belongings that reads, help us. Anthony is a monster. And Anthony doesn't much care for that note. And he wants to know who wrote it. Process of elimination leads him to Ethel. So Anthony goes ahead and wishes her into a cartoon on the television where she gets killed by a large dragon-like cartoon character. Yeah, I guess. Whatever works. I have an actual IMDb trivia fact about that. Jesus fucking Christ, Brian. Kind of. About that. Okay. In the segment of Good Life, Anthony wishes his sister Ethel into cartoon land. Ethel is played by Nancy Cartwright. Nancy Cartwright has voiced numerous cartoon characters, Bart Simpson most famously, for over 30 years. Thanks for, uh... Wasting everybody's time. I want to apologize yeah. publicly yeah. for Brian. Casey, Casey it won't happen heard again. of Nancy Cartwright. Now, now you know. Now you know. Fun enough. Uh, Treehouse of Terror did a couple episodes. One of them doing doing exactly this this very story. And Bart Simpson as the main character, uh, voiced by Nancy Cartwright. There How about go. that? So there Nancy Cartwright you go. did this story at least twice. The more you know. Do do do. <laughs> <laughs> Angry at the family, Anthony makes them and the house all disappear, leaving himself and Helen in a limbo-like state surrounded by literal nothingness. It's creepy, too. It's so weird. Helen promises Anthony that she'll be his true friend if he agrees not to abuse his power anymore. And Anthony's like, all right, I can use my power for good. And then he produces Helen's car out of nowhere, and they ride off together into the sunset, surrounded by... Uh, Blooming flowers and blooming whatnot. Blooming flowers it's along the so way. Weird. It's so extremely bizarre. Uh, super uncomfortable. Did not care for that ending yeah. at all. <laughs> uh, wait, are they gonna? Are they gonna kiss? They might as well have. It and that is an adult lady and a child, and it's strange. Weird. I don't know which of them I'm more uncomfortable with. All of it, all around, uncomfortable. 
Are you ready for that last segment? This is the one that everybody knows. Let's do segment four. Probably the most famous of Twilight Zone stories. Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Directed by George fucking Miller. Which, fun enough, uh, the original episode directed by Dick Donner. No shit! Yeah, it was the first of six episodes he directed. I didn't know that. I knew he directed Twilight Zone. I thought it was just like nothing throwaway episodes, but uh, here it is, one of the most famous. It was a big boy. What you're looking at could be the end of a particularly terrifying nightmare. It isn't. It's the beginning. Introducing Mr. John Valentine, air traveler. His destination, the hot tub time machine. <laughs> Again. <laughs> John Valentine is played by John fucking Lithgow. Full stop. That should be like the end of the segment right there. Just call it quits. There you I go. I think you nailed it. Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, starring John Lithgow. That's all you need to know. The end. John Valentine is a nervous and stressed out airline passenger on a flight to L.A. The flight attendants are trying to coax him out of the lavatory as he tries to recover from a panic attack. They're being really cool about it, too. They're like, man, do you need anything? Like, I, yeah. I feel so bad. Do you want water? Do you want some pills to kind of calm your I'm, ass I'm down? I'm not supposed to do this, but I have, I have sedatives. They're really mild. They'll probably chill you out until we get to where we're going. John Lithgow's like, I'm good. I know I just spent like half an hour in the toilet, but I'm good. I'm just going to sit in my seat. Everything's fine. He is a sweaty man in this. He's super like sweaty. Like the sweatiest man. Like the Bloodhound gang would look at him and be like, no more Texas drought at all. <laughs> <laughs> None. You know that gif of, um, of Jordan Peele sweating from Key and Peele? Yeah, it's pretty much that. It's basically that. It's like airplane levels of sweat. And it's appropriate that we bring up Jordan Peele. It is very appropriate because his Twilight Zone kicks ass. <laughs> his Twilight Zone is actually very good, but nobody's seeing it because it's on Paramount+. Plus. Yeah, that's not a great spot for But his Nightmare at 30,000 Feet oh, with Adam Scott, Jesus, it's excellent. Good. It's got like such a cool, modern way of telling that story that yes. I just love. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Highly recommend. Absolutely. So John Valentine repeatedly assures the flight attendants that everything is fine but his nerves and antics are starting to disturb the other passengers. As Mr. Valentine takes his seat, he notices out on the wing of the plane a hideous gremlin-like creature, and he begins to spiral into severe panic. He's screaming, and nobody else sees it out there because it keeps jumping away when everybody else looks. It's very much uh, a remake of the original story. So far, but the only so trade far. that we've made so far is um, no Shatner. Instead, you get a Lithgow, which is a very good trade. And you just good trade. sweat, baby, sweat. Yeah. It, she's so gross. I can't describe how gross this man actually is. <laughs> well, I have an actual IMDb trivia fact. I, I bet you do. Yes. I bet you have another. I had I to get at least one in each segment. Come on. Jeez. William Shatner, at one point, was in consideration to reprise his lead role in the Nightmare at 20,000 Feet segment. He had to turn it down due to prior commitments. Ultimately, John Lithgow was cast in the role. Years later, Lithgow would star in the TV series Third Rock from the Sun as the alien Dick <laughs> Solomon, sent to Earth to observe human behavior with three others. Their boss, the big giant, big giant head, head, was never seen until William Shatner guest starred in the role. When he first appears, Solomon asks him how his trip was. Shatner answers, it was a horrible flight. There was a man on the wing of the plane. Solomon replies, the same thing happened to me. Wink. Ding. That's so how you do it. Oh, good. If you haven't watched Third Rock from the Sun since it like aired, you are severely missing out. 
I feel like that right there should tell you all you need to know about whether you should be watching Third Rock or not. That show is so damn funny. Still, <laughs> it's so, so good. So Valentine watches the creature wreaks havoc on the wing and the plane engine, losing more control each time he watches the creature do something new. And the people inside the plane are all like, this guy's fucking crazy. Well, I love how the flight attendants like sit him down. They're like, no, now you kind of have to take these sedatives. And he's like, okay. <laughs> like, even the co-pilot comes out and is like, buddy, listen. He's not even being <laughs> that aggressive. Like, this is my plane, motherfucker. You better follow them rules or else I'm going to literally throw no, you yeah. out on the way. Yeah, he's he's like, like, dude, calm down. But then he hears, you know, that he knows about the, the engine going out. He's like, well, I don't know how you would know about that. That's kind of weird. But anyway, I'm not going to further fuel your insanity fire. I'm just going to piece off back to the cockpit. Someone's got to fly this thing. <laughs> Eventually, Valentine completely snaps, and he grabs a handgun from the air marshal that's trying to restrain him, and he shoots out the window, which causes a breach in the pressurized cabin, and begins firing at the creature out on the wing that nobody else can see. No, he gets sucked down, and he becomes an icy John Lithgow? He, because he was frozen today. That's right. That was Christopher Lloyd. It that's was. very different. But... He was frozen today. It's a good point. And he's just recklessly firing a handgun. Out of plane window. Out of plane window. And I like how they said that, like, no, we're 20 minutes away from landing. It's like, you are still way up in those clouds. There's That's no way you're 20, 20 minutes, minutes away. away. Yeah. The gremlin rushes up to Valentine and destroys the gun. And then as they clear the clouds and the gremlin notices that they're about to land, he gives Valentine's face a little squeeze. And then he gives him a quick Dikembe Mutombo. No, no, no. No, no, no. Not day. And then he just jumps off the wing and flies off into the sky. And what? <laughs> yeah. Pretty weird, huh? <laughs> it's so strange. He basically Mary Poppins it, too. It's not like he flaps his <laughs> wings or anything. He just floats up majestically. I Mary Poppins, y'all. Is he cool? Yeah, he's cool. Yeah, he's cool. On the ground, as Valentine is wrapped in a straight jacket and carried off in an ambulance, the police crew, and passengers discuss the incident, writing off Valentine as insane. But when the aircraft maintenance crew arrived, everyone gathers to examine this unexplained damage to the plane's exterior and the engines. Oh, maybe that gremlin wasn't just in John Lithgow's head. Hmm? No, that's the beauty of the Twilight Zone right there. Sure is. Valentine is in the ambulance, headed to a hospital, when the driver starts playing Creedence Clearwater Revival's Midnight Special. Driver turns around, and it's Dan Aykroyd again. And he says, heard you had a big scare up there, huh? Want to see something really scary? What a way to end this flick. So good. You go from Dan Aykroyd doing a scary face to a man getting his head chopped off. <laughs> to Dan Aykroyd doing a scary face. Yeah. And that is the Twilight Zone. The I want to keep calling it the Twilight Zone, but they just say, no, it's just Twilight Zone. It's weird that it's just, it's just Twilight, Twilight Zone. Zone. But that is Twilight Zone, the movie from 1983, directed by lots of people. <laughs> uh, it's bizarre. It's so weird. It doesn't need to exist. Agreed. At all. <laughs> Completely agreed. Uh, but now we have it, and we no longer have Vic Morrow because of it. Some, I guess trades needed to be made. I guess so. What do you think of this thing? I want to like it. I just uh, I don't see the value in it. That's that's a weird way of saying it, but it doesn't do anything for me that the original series didn't do. Well, the original did it so much better. Yeah. And I feel like by putting these stars in it and kind of just like forcing these segments along, it takes the charm out of what the show was supposed to be. Yeah. 
Because what the Twilight Zone is, it's just basically a character study told in 22 minutes. Like you get in, you get introduced to this world really, really quickly and yeah, really you're thoroughly thrown into it. Yeah, and then story's told and you dip, and that's pretty much how the Twilight Zone works. Exactly. And I feel like with this, everything just feels so forced. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. I didn't not like it. Yeah, that's what the thing. That's like, I, it was. Yeah, I didn't not like it. I just didn't like it as much as watching the originals. Exactly. And that seems to be what everyone else thinks about this thing, too, because Rotten Tomatoes, 1 100, what are you thinking? Oh, 70. 59. Okay. And audience scores 55%. Roger Ebert did see this. He gave it two out of four stars. He says, every year at Oscar time, somebody comes up with the bright idea of making the Academy Awards into a fair fight. Instead of making the voters choose among five widely different performances, they say they ought to have five actors playing the same scene. That way, you'd really be able to see who was the best. It's an impractical idea, but Twilight Zone the movie does almost the same thing. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what it's... it is. It's just you have neurotic characters in four different segments about to get either their comeuppance or their psychotic break or whatever it might be. Right. Ebert goes on to say, it takes four stories that are typical of the basic approach of the great Twilight Zone TV series, and it has four different directors try their hand at recapturing Rod Serling's wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Mm. And the surprising thing is, the two superstar directors are thoroughly routed by two less-known directors whose previous credits have been horror and action pictures. And I completely agree. 100%. Joe Dante and George Miller really shine they really really do big time uh, you can definitely see their touches that they add to it that you wouldn't get from other directors absolutely the spielberg and the, the landis segments almost feel like they were playing it safe uh, for obvious reasons uh, they were also producers in the movie and probably wanted to you know just get it done and move it along i think that's the right move and spielberg's just like i gave you my fucking whimsy i'm getting out of here right yeah. now and landis is like I killed a guy. <laughs> Straight up killed a guy. Uh, uh, oh, oh, boy. <laughs> and it didn't go under the radar for anyone <laughs> that he killed a guy. No, no. It's, it's right there on Front Street. It is. And the first review on Letterboxd that there is says, these motherfuckers literally had a meeting where they decided that it was more fiscally expedient <laughs> to release a movie that edited around the death of a man and two children instead of dropping a single segment of an anthology film. There isn't a work of art in the history of humanity that is worth more than a human life, let alone a cynical corporate product. Fuck this and fuck them. Boom. Not wrong. Yeah, I agree. That's uh, pretty spot on, actually. <laughs> it really is. He, he calls it how he sees it. And the other letterbox review that I pulled says, does anyone watch this and not pause and read Wikipedia? <laughs> uh guilty four times over actually yeah, yeah that actually that <laughs> that's exactly how i watched it and those are the only two that i pulled because those are the only ones worth reading really <laughs> that seems appropriate i do have an actual imdb trivia fact that a is also movie i'm what are you doing also a new york times review oh all right well now i'm actually a little bit interested Vincent Canby of the New York Times wrote this scathing op-ed about the Twilight Zone movie. Okay. 
The film, which opens today at Sutton and other theaters, is composed of a prologue written for the movie, plus four separate stories, each of them either based directly on a script from the television series or suggested by one. A lot of money and several lives might have been saved if the Bruisers had just re-released the original programs. Yeah, not wrong. Not wrong at all. 100% true. You want to give this thing a super stuff score? Because I'm a little curious what it's going to get right now. I'm super curious. But first... And now for another edition of the Cape Podcast's Theater. This is a little scary because you don't send these to me before we do them. I so, don't. They're always kind of what do we got? A surprise at the end of the episode. Uh, Keaton Patty forced a bot to watch over a thousand hours of Black <laughs> Mirror. All right, that's appropriate. And then asked it to write an episode of Black Mirror of its own. Uh, Black Mirror. If you have not seen it, people call it the modern Twilight Zone. Uh, so it felt appropriate because Keaton Patty, for some reason, did not write a have a bot write a Twilight Zone episode. And that feels like yet. Maybe. I don't know. Just complete oversight in his count. You know, give him time. All right. He all right. Do so much. He's got to force bots to watch a thousand hours of things. That's right. There's only so many bot hours in a day. <laughs> all right. On this one, Dave, you're going to be doing the narration and the part of father. And I will be playing the teen son and the mom. Oh, you lucky guy. Yeah get to play your dream roles <laughs> <laughs> you ready i'm ready when you are all right black mirror action interior house with 90 computers a father and a teen son eat in a future kitchen they eat mustard the only food in the future the kitchen smells like burnt wi-fi because future eating is not fun i want to kiss on the internet mom would let me mom is gone she was an app and i deleted her for not living British. Let's push buttons to bring mom back. Moms are happier alive. We see a button next to the 50 kitchen computers. It says make mom on it. But the button is sharp. The button is totally sharp. Pushing would stab the body. This is why we own sex drones. <laughs> Teen son throws a sex drone at the button. A mom is made. Where am I? Who are I? Where is I? Why button so sharp? I'm bad, Mom. Son, her memory is disgusting. It was mistake to act like Doc. <laughs> it was a mistake to act like a god. Dot com. Mom, please get murdered again. <laughs> Teen son throws a sex drone at Mom. It goes through Mom. Hologram Mom from virtual reality dimension can't even eat mustard. Not true. I am so real. Mom touches the mustard, but it turns to ketchup, which means we are not in future, but in way past. The computers were rocks. The sex drones were sex rocks. It is 1997. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, that's very good. Also, what happens if you go to God.com? I'm not sure I need that question answered. I'm doing it. I'm going to get some probably weird Google stuff. It's just mybible.com, apparently, which... I don't know what that's all about. That's boring. Use God.com. You can sign in, sign up, and probably charges you money because uh, tax the churches. There is no punchline to that. Tax the churches. Tax them. <laughs> Not a political show. Not a political show. Do you want to do a super stuff score now? <laughs> yes. Let's do a super stuff score now. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Story and motivation. There is none. By There's design. <laughs> four stories. Yeah, and they all just kind of happen. And they do all just kind of happen. There's no point 
to this movie existing. And I read that they were its own problem. originally supposed to uh, end up in the same place at the end, like the characters from the different, but obviously that became an issue when one of the main characters got their head chopped off by a helicopter. That's very, very fair. And I can so imagine like, that it would just... be difficult to do a whole multiverse thing yeah. when one of your actors gets his head chopped off by a helicopter. Yeah, it's, it's tough. So they're like, maybe we just loop Dan Aykroyd back in at the end? All right, cool. It's a good move. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go 0.25 because the stories are fine. 0.25 because there are stories. Heroes. Rod Serling. Is that enough of an <laughs> he's, argument? He's not in it. He's at the end. It's, all right, barely. And Burgess Meredith. Burgess Meredith. So, zero? I think that's appropriate, yes. Zero. Hey, how about them villains? A, a gremlin on a wing. Got a gremlin on a wing. Naughty stuff. Got a, a little boy who makes bad wishes. That's right. You got an old man who's just crotchety. He's just so curmudgeon -y. And you have a helicopter. And <laughs> You have, you have Harold from Thomas the Train and Friends or whatever that is. <laughs> <laughs> do, do, ding, 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 ding. Slice. <laughs> oh, God. Very different show. Very. Still George Carlin, though. Oh, okay. Well, that All right, that. kids. Let me tell you another word you can't say on television. <laughs> I would even argue that Bill Connor is the villain of his, his segment. He absolutely is. Um, 0. 0.25. 0. 0.25. We could identify knowledge that, there's that they had villains. In there, yes. Um, parents? Teamwork? I don't think it matters. I think it doesn't it's matter. zero. Zero. Female characters. <laughs> they are there. Uh, they are Not sparse. as leads. Um, we, we didn't talk about the flight attendant, the senior flight attendant. Yes. In Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Her acting name is Abby Lane, mm -hmm. and I feel like that's bullshit for Beatles reasons. <laughs> and for that reason, I want to go zero. <laughs> yeah, I want to go zero because I don't like her stage name. You can't change a, a street. You just downgrade the kind of <laughs> roadway it is, and then that's my name. What would that be? Like road, ave, drive, lane. It's not the type of roadway that it is. It's like the, it's yeah. not even like a descriptor. It's just like the surname of the road. <laughs> surname of the road. Are you telling me that all abs are related? All these avenues are cousins. <laughs> no, there's like a, a you reason. You keep those you name lanes it. away from those abs. I've told you a thousand times about touching that ave. There's differences between streets, roads, avenues, and boulevards and whatnot. A boulevard, I get. There's broken dreams on those bad boys. That's true. It's a lonely road that you have to walk. It along. really is. Um, we're getting really hung up on the name of the flight attendant. <laughs> when, we are. When Kathleen Quinlan actually was the lead in her segment. She was, but she also takes a child. She does. She, to she wherever steals she's going. a magical orphan <laughs> for maybe possibly nefarious purposes. Zero. Just call it a day. Let's go zero. <laughs> a magical orphan. <laughs> for what it's oh, worth. Self-orphaned. Yeah, that's also fair. <laughs> um, setting? Everywhere and nowhere. Well, here's the thing. Yeah. Yes, because the setting is the Twilight Zone. That's fair, and for that reason, I'm going to go one. I agree. Somehow it managed in its ambiguity to be perfect. Nailed it. Style and tone. It's all over the place, it but it's by design. Absolutely all over the place, and intentionally so. Uh, it reeks of Spielberg. It reeks of Dante. Oh, big time. 
Uh, <laughs> there's so much Dante in there. It's almost it's crazy. Landis, I don't know. It's fine. And Miller, yeah, it's also fine. Yeah. I would say that it's a point two five for me. I kind of wish that there was a bit more of a cohesive style to it all. Yeah. Instead of just slapping random segments and saying, here you go, movie. Right. Yeah. Point two five. Music. This might be the only thing about the movie that was actually the same throughout. The smooth stylings of Jerry fucking Goldsmith. He's very good at what he does. So very good. They basically just said, like, who's a guy who does really appropriate music for movies? Oh, Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah, I, I feel like the music, I don't remember any of it, really, except for when they were playing the Credence. That's very fair. I'm going to go point five because Jerry Goldsmith is very good at what he does. Extremely good. And being appropriate is half the battle in it. It really is. Point five for music. One-liners. I got nothing. I can't think of a single one. Perfect. Zero. And the final category, impact on the genre. The genre being comic book movies, uh, this is one of the bigger stretches we've ever had. Mm, it really is. I mean, they've done a few comic books, Twilight Zone comic books, but uh, <laughs> I mean, it's it's better than Lord of the Rings. Hey! I mean, connection-wise. I don't mean content-wise. That's very fair. Uh, there's not a real big impact at all. Well, let me tell you, let me ask you this question. Yeah. How many comic book movies is Vic Morrow in? After this movie? At all. A quarter of one? Yeah. So what does that tell you? Nothing? This movie took away the option of having Vic Morrow <laughs> in comic <God>. book movies. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, speaking of stretches. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> I guess. Uh, still zero, by the way. Yeah, definitely a zero. <laughs> that is going to give Twilight Zone the movie a total score of 2.25. Perfect. Nailed it. Uh, if you want to watch Twilight Zone, go watch the show. Yeah. I, I think you do not need to watch this. If you're curious, go for it. But it's there if yeah. you want it. Yeah. And it's not going to give you any more insight into the, what happened on set than just reading the Wikipedia page will. Exactly. So, And on that note, Brian, I got a big question to ask you. I have a big answer. What are we talking about next week? Next week is a big boy. Uh, it's one we've been working up to for a long time. It's the biggest boy, I'd say. We're going to be talking about Avengers Endgame. It is about time, but as you know, if you've stuck around with us for a long time, we've gone through the MCU in relative order. Black yeah. Panther is the only one we did, I think, out of order, and that was right. for Chadwick Boseman reasons, kind of trying to honor the man a little bit. Uh, but Avengers Endgame, they don't get much bigger than that. They really don't. It's uh, it's going to be a an epic conclusion to the Infinity Saga, even though it's not really the conclusion. It sort of is, but sort of isn't. We'll get there. <laughs> we will, eventually. Until then, thank you for listening. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe on your podcast platform of preference. Join us on Patreon this month for Hot Tub Time Machine. For real. For real, we're doing it. We are actually doing it. It's not code for anything. It's the movie we're talking about. Right. <laughs> You can email us your questions and comments at katepodcasters at gmail.com. Uh, I have one right now, but I'm holding it for next week, and the person who sent it knows exactly why. Fair enough. So there's your little your little teaser. A teaser. For next week's email. And I want to say thank you for that email. It's, uh, it's thoughtful. Good. A preemptive thank you. Yeah. Now everyone's just left in suspense. That's the way we do it here. It's the way I do it now. And you can also follow us on social media at katepodcasters on all of the things. 
especially on Facebook, where we always put up a post on our recording days asking for your questions and comments. And we got a couple. Phil Hudson Hawkins asks, on a scale of one to a bowl of decapitated actors, it's not our thing. What rating would you give Twilight Zone the movie? One decapitated. One. One, one. No, two decapitated oh, two. actors. That's, that's very fair. And actually. one smushed one. So, uh, just a two. Yeah. According to the the scale that was laid out before us, just two. Right. So there you go, Phil. I hope you're happy and satisfied with yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and the ginger skull, Dave Novak. He asked, there have been a couple of attempts to reboot the Twilight Zone, but nothing ever seems to stick. Why is that? And first of all, Dave, I want to go on record and say thank you for asking an actual thoughtful question for once. That was actually surprising. I was expecting it in a hoy hoy and then something absolutely ridiculous. That's it right there. That's got to be it, right? Yeah, for sure. This isn't the real Dave Novak. It can't be. We've entered some sort of alternate dimension of time and space yeah he got body snatched by like a real boy a real adult boy <laughs> and he's not just a weird creepy ginger skull walking around anymore yeah doing creepy ginger skull things like he wants to do he's lost somewhere between light and shadow and science leave and him superstition. fucking leave him there <laughs> uh, uh, i think the reason why it doesn't really seem to stick is because there's a certain charm to the originals yeah and I feel like that charm goes out the window and people start forcing it. It's kind of like M. Night Shyamalan post Sixth Sense. Yes. Where you know. Right. You, you understand. You're in on the joke. You, you know, know what joke, the, but the you're in on it. is. Yeah. And you're like, all right, it's probably going to take place in Philly and there's going to be an absurd twist ending. And I mean, Jordan Peele gets really damn close he does to what it's supposed to be. Excellent job. Unfortunately, it's not super accessible. It's not at all accessible. But, it's Paramount Plus. I mean, they've done. He's done two seasons already, so he I has. imagine it's getting at least some kind of viewership on it, which is good because I think it's actually very well done. Um, it does fall into the same kind of modernization trope of let's put some big stars in it for attention. But I think that's something that you have to do nowadays. You do, and it's interesting choices for the stars that are getting chosen to do the Twilight Zone because. It is big stars, but a lot of them are character actors right. still. Yeah. Where, I mean, Adam Scott is really only a lead in maybe Severance. Yeah. And other than that, he kind of plays ensemble really, really well. So seeing a character actor come to the forefront is really interesting in modern times because that just doesn't happen right. all the time. Right, yeah. And then you have uh, Kumail Nanjiani Kumail. in the first episode. Yeah. Fantastic. Absolutely. But yeah. But I feel like if they made that series more accessible, people would be diving all over it. Yeah, it's I think if that, that was good. on like Netflix or Hulu, people would be watching it for sure. Absolutely. So, Phil, thank you, Dave. I guess thank you. I feel yucky. It's a new experience for me. <laughs> it's not great. Uh, I don't like it. Brian, do you have anything else? That's it for me. Fantastic. We're going to see everybody next week for the big one. It's Avengers Endgame. Same pod time. Same pod? Get to the chopper!